You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Not too long ago, I came across a story. Uh, uh, There's a legal battle in the state of Massachusetts over this matter of separation in church and state. And uh, there's a, a couple years prior to this legal battle, there was a, a high school graduating class. You know, sometimes a graduating class will gift something to the school. Maybe it's a sign or something that they've done. They'll leave something tangible as kind of their mark and just with the school. Well, a couple years prior to that, there was a, the senior class left. Their gift to the school was a plaque. A pr- it was a, a blessing. So that was this blessing was written out and put on a plaque and then mounted on the wall in the school. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't a prayer, you know. In other words, it wasn't you know, dear God. It was it acknowledged uh, the fact that you know of a God, you know, and asking for God's blessing. But it was in no way was it an overtly Christian message, you know. It didn't Jesus' name wasn't mentioned. Um, so in in the the class, their perception was as if it was a fairly benign form of blessing. Well. Because it referenced God, one of the students now, come up a couple years later, who was then a senior, took offense at this plaque that was mounted on the wall and sued the school district to have it taken down. And so what caught my interest wasn't all the, the legal positioning, because he had both sides. So it's, it's not a violation of separation church and state, and it is. And so he had different things. What really caught my story, though, was an interview with this student. And the, the, the person asked her, said, what, how did you come to this position? She came to be an atheist, since so that was her thing. She said, I didn't believe there's a God. And, and I just thought it was fascinating. Her response to the question, how did you come to this, this position, was, I used to believe in God. But when I was in middle school, my grandmother got sick. And I prayed very, 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 very hard for God to heal her. And she died. He didn't heal her, so there must not be a God. And I, I, as I read that, I just my emotions went from you know kind of frustrated, angry that there's such a stupid lawsuit out there, to one of more sadness that this middle-aged school girl, middle school girl, not middle-aged, middle school girl, didn't have someone in her life to help her walk through a very difficult season. How sad is that? Yeah, so it, it really it, it amazed me that instead of actually using this t- difficult time to draw closer to God, which use, which happens frequently with people, this difficult time we actually draw closer to God because of our relationship with Him, she went in the exact opposite direction. She looked at these circumstances and determined there must not be a God. And she was then taking it out on other people as part of that expression. See, our personal experiences directly affect our theology, directly affect the way we perceive and understand God. Our, you know, we, we talk about the Bible as the basis of our theology, how we understand God, which is true, but our experiences also are part of that conversation. They influence that in a significant way. And sometimes we need the help of other people in order to maintain a proper view of God. People who can help us through difficult circumstances when sometimes our perspective may not be what it needs to be. They can say, hey, I just want to shift you this way a little bit and look at it here. Or I want to remind you of this or I want to help you with that. Without that, sometimes we're, we're, we're left with a perspective that just really 
actually does more harm sometimes than good. And like this young woman, an inaccurate understanding of the love of God can keep us from rightly responding and relating to God. So regardless of our circumstances, we need to remember that God loves us, regardless of what our circumstances are. God doesn't just love us, however. God is love, and he is literally the very expression of love. And if you want to know what love looks like, we just need to look at God. The best way, one of the ways to do that is in Scripture. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago, that the, the Bible, Scripture, is one of the ways that God has revealed himself to his creation, to us. So we actually understand more about God. We understand about his nature, who he is, through our reading of Scripture. Now... From the Bible, there's a number of ways that that God has described himself. One is the idea of unmeasurable. We can't measure God. Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. It's impossible to quantify the love of God. Um, Our oldest son, when he was about three, it was the cutest thing. Um, you know, as three-year-olds will do. You know, he would come up and wanting to express, you know, his, you know, his love for Betsy or myself. He would come up in his arms like this. He goes, "I love you so much in the whole world." And I was like, "What does that mean?" I, I, it's a, I knew it was a lot. You know, it's what he's trying to say. It was so much in the whole world is how much he loved us. Literally, it was, it was, it was incalculable, unmeasurable. Um, And that's one of the ways the Bible talks about God's love for us. It's unmeasurable. Another way is that it's uncomprehensible. Now, for those of you grammar wonks, this actually is a word. I looked it up because I didn't think it was. I thought they were just trying to be cute and putting un in front of the word, but actually is the word. Uncomprehensible. Ephesians 3 says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And know this love that surpasses knowledge. His prayer is that you may have the power to grasp how big and how powerful and deep this love is. If you know of someone who's struggling with their faith, um, doubts, or maybe they're just not even sure about this whole God thing, my suggestion is, is sometimes it, you can only reason. You can also, here's what the Bible says. You can talk to them some, you can only do that so long. And so at some point in time, they've got to make a choice. So what I encourage people to do is pray for them to have a divine encounter with God. You can't deny that. Now, it may not necessarily need to be a a Moses burning bush experience, but something that experience in their life that they look at and say, there's no other way to explain this except that God. Now, there may be all kinds of questions that still remain, but the fact is, there is this way that we can understand that, that there is a God, that even though that it's beyond reason, this experience helps shape my understanding and what I know to be true. So God is unmeasurable. He's uncomprehensible. God's love is also unfailing. Psalms 107, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. God's love is also unconditional. 
Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's, it's unconditional. <clears throat> God's love is also unceasing. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. It, there's no beginning and ending. It always has been and always will be. So these are just some of the verses that we see in Scripture of some of the ways that the Bible talks about God's love for us. So here's the thing. There's nothing you can do right now that will cause God to, God to love you any more than he already does. There's nothing. You can't earn more love from God. God's love is complete. It's absolute. It is completely there. You can't do any more to cause him to love you anymore. Likewise, there's nothing you can do to cause him to love you any less. Nothing you can do will cause God to love you any less than he already does. God's love is complete. It's absolute. It's all those words we just mentioned above. It's unmeasurable, uncomprehensible, unfailing, unconditional, and unceasing. Now, Luke chapter 15 has three stories. There's three parables in the chapter that give us another visual from real life circumstances of God's love. <clears throat> now context in, in for this, this chapter is Jesus is sitting eating. He's at a meal. And it sounds like there's one of these kind of a, well, there's a potluck meal or whatever. There's a group, there's a large group of people. Um, but it's the, the, the writer Luke, as he's writing his, his letter here, he makes very clear the fact that Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners. Now, this, what he's trying to tell us here, this was not the power brokers of the city. These were not the people that uh, were the movers and shakers. These were not the rich people and the wealthy and the powerful. These were the nobodies, but actually they were worse than nobodies. These are the ones you had to avoid. Tax collectors were worse than sinners. Um, tax collectors were often Jews, but they, and, and so they, they were part of the same race, but they collected taxes on behalf of the Roman government. So then they were traitors. They were worse than worse. Sinners is just a general term to say that they were not following the Jewish tradition. And the people who were complaining were the religious leaders. And in their world, that their basic premise is that you have to earn God's love and favor. The more good things you do, the different things you, the, 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 if you follow the certain rules and rituals and procedures, you would earn God's love and favor. And one of the things in order to do that is that you couldn't associate people who also didn't have that same goal, have that same ambition that weren't like them. And Jesus was eating with them. And he's sitting down and conversing and having conversations, and they had a problem. And so in response to them saying, you know, this, this shouldn't be, Jesus tells three stories. And the first one uh, begins actually with verse 3. And uh, oh, you do have it. Okay, good. <clears throat> so then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
So what is Jesus saying here? Everyone matters. Everyone matters. Not only that, what's conveyed here in this parable, God actually pursues us. Sometimes we think that we're often alone and we're abandoned and that we've got to find our way to God. There's, that's not an accurate perspective. God is actually pursuing us. Sometimes the person that we meet accidentally um, that has this conversation with us and puts us on a different path is actually part of God's actually helping to drive and direct us. And the Holy Spirit convicting us and speaking to our hearts and speaking to our minds, there's this constant pursuit of God for us. We're not abandoned. We're not alone. God is pursuing us. In fact, 1 John chapter 4 says, We love because he first loved us. God's initiated this for us already. So in that first parable, the lost sheep, we see God's love revealed in that he leaves the 99 to find the one. Everyone matters. Everyone is significant. So there's a second picture of God's love that we see in the following, in the verses that follow. In verse 8, it begins, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've lost my coin, or I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So I think it's interesting in the first story of the sheep, it's a man pursuing the lost sheep. In the second story of the coin, it's a woman who's doing uh, the searching. Um, Anyway, I thought that was interesting. So again, we see the fact that even in in this story of the coin, that God is proactive in seeking us out. It's very intentional about that. It wasn't like that, you know, as she was cleaning, she found the coin. No, no. She literally set everything aside and, you know, used light and a broom, and she was intentionally pursuing and seeking and trying to find this lost coin. And then she does more than just look. You know, by bringing in the light and and using this lantern and and the broom, this is a very active search. It's not a passive, eh, I don't see it. You know, sometimes what we husbands do when we're asked to, you know, wear something, you know, I don't see it. But you haven't haven't even looked. Well, yeah, I did. I didn't see it. But um, not that I ever do that. I've heard people do that. But but this this woman here is, is very actively looking. Very actively, and she's tearing apart the house. You, you, maybe you've lost something, or, and you've had a similar experience where you're just, no, there's, there's, everything's torn up to find this. And that was woman. So in this parable of the lost coin, we see God's love revealed as He brings the light into our darkness. We're lost, and He brings His light and finds us. And the third picture of God's love is another parable, one uh, I suspect uh, most of you have heard before. It's the the parable of the prodigal son. And it picks up in verse 11. And Jesus is talking here, and he says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So the, he, the father, divided his property between them. <coughs> Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. One of the things that, you know, we understand the relational dynamic here. What we hear, because of time and distance, we don't get the cultural significance of what happened here. It's often lost. It wasn't just this exchange of money. It wasn't just a financial thing. What this son did literally brought shame to this father, to the whole community. Well, his actions, this was one where this man probably couldn't go out in public anymore because of what the son had done. His behavior so shamed him, it literally devastated his life. So this wasn't just, uh, you know, you hurt my feelings, but here's your money, now get out of here. This was what you were doing is literally destroying my reputation in the whole community. And in that time and in that culture, reputation was significant. It meant everything. Everyone, everyone in the community knew what this son had done and knew what was going on, and everyone knew it, and it it just brought, it just devastated that whole family. So the act of not just forgiving this son, but also welcoming him home with a party would have been unimaginable to the listeners of Jesus telling the story. This, that the fact that he did this just was beyond their comprehension that Jesus would act, that this father, this man would actually do such a thing. But yet, that is what Jesus is trying to say. The love of God is beyond your ability to comprehend it. The love of God is beyond what the shame that we might bring on him. He still loves us and still cares for us. And so in this third parable, the lost son, we see God's love revealed as he welcomes home and restores the son who has failed. So let's, uh, let's address another reality that's presented in these parables. Um, In the parable of the lost sheep, it says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, it's easy to be happy for the one. 
We get that. When the one is lost and we find it, one, and that's a great thing. We're really good. Um, but what if you're one of the 99? What is that? Now, I realize I'm stretching here. This is not the point of the parable. But as we read these parables, these are things that I'm left with. So what happens if you're one of the 99? And all this attention is on the one. We feel left out. And we feel less valued, like he loves them more than he loves us. There's that possibility. So we have that dynamic going on. And even in the prodigal son story, the story goes on from what we just read a moment ago. In verse 28, the older brother, so remember when there's two brothers and the younger brother says, give me my money, and he leaves, brings shame to the family. The older brother remains. And he became angry and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he said to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And what, but when this son of yours, notice this son of yours, you didn't say my brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. How many of you identify with this older brother? Yeah, that's all right. I, for the longest time, I just, I really struggle with this story because this just isn't fair. I mean, I get, I get, I love the fact that the father's able to forgive the young son. I get that. But I identified so much more so with the older brother who just sometimes felt like, you know what? I, I, I get that. I understood why he was upset couple thoughts in both of these stories about what might be perceived as eh, uncomfortable ideas. So let me close with a couple thoughts here. With regard to the 99 who might feel less valued because of all the attention given to the one, this actually has the potential to be a real problem within Christian groups, especially within churches. And I would even go so far as to say, especially within a church like Grace Covenant Statesville. Because here's what happens. Let me back up this way. So this, this group has been around 17, 18 years now um, and has a long history or 18, 17, 18 year history of Christian people, uh, committed Christ followers who love the Lord passionately, who have remained committed to this group through some very challenging times. You've experienced a lot. You've endured a lot in these past few years. And yet you're still here. And while you're thrilled to see the church doing better, we're in a new building. You've got a new pastor. New people are coming. Things are different. They're changing. And leadership roles are being filled by people who do things differently than you do. And it can feel sometimes awkward, can't it? Now, here, here's, here's where I've come through and that kind of stuff. When I find myself in that type of a situation, I think back to my kids. Those of you who have kids, you know, whether you know, they're adult children, especially if, if this way, or if they're married, your son-in-law or daughter-in-law. And it's this, it's this idea here. If you've got, and our, our daughter just got married, so I, 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 I'm now beginning to experience what this is like. I ask myself the question, do I want them to fail? Of course not. I mean, we want this to succeed and to do well. But I have to parent them differently, don't I? 
I can't, I can't be the parent and tell him what to do. I have to instead, I've got to, um, I, I don't want to work against them. I don't want to abandon them either. You know, so instead of just, you know, kind of hanging on, well, you have to, unless sometimes you have to let go of control and be willing to come alongside of them and say, hey, I'm here if you need me. So you don't abandon them. You don't walk away, but you, you have to lead differently. And so as it is with our kids, as they get old and mature things, sometimes it's like that within an organization as well, as things change. How we handle that, how we respond to that, makes all the difference in the world. So that we can truly celebrate with the one and not feel like, as part of the 99, that somehow we're being left behind or we're less than valued. You're greatly valued. It's just that the roles are changing a little bit. So that's the one thought. With the regard to the prodigal son... It's important to remember that the um, consequences of his actions remained. So, Father, he's talking to his older son. He said, my son, you were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is fine. I, I had so for so long overlooked that section, and everything I have is yours. In other words, the younger brother who was now coming back was the beneficiary of his father's hospitality only as long as his father was alive. When his father passed away, everything reverted to the older brother. Everything was his. There was no more inheritance. He uses inheritance. So there were still consequences of that, like in our life. The story is telling us that God forgives us and loves us and we're welcome back. That doesn't mean there's not consequences for some of the things, the choices we may have made in the past. And that will always be that way. So, in these stories, God is talking about love. And talking about, uh, that, that Jesus is talking about God's love for us. And I suspect that this morning there's probably some of you who are struggling with the idea of God's love because of experiences in your past. Things have happened that have said, ah, it just, it, it's, it's shaded, there's a filter over your perception of God. It's influenced the way you perceive that. And that can be hard. That can be very hurtful and painful. And I guess what I want to show this morning and help understand is that God's posture towards you has not changed. There's never been a promise of easy life, of things won't happen. What has been promised is that in the midst of that, you will find him right there with you. That promise of comfort and peace in the midst of hardship is always there. Um, Ron Burford uh, uh, shared with me a picture last night that uh, Carrie's sister, the one who just passed, sent to Carrie a few, uh, I don't know, how long ago was it, Ron? Recently? About six months ago. Okay. So she's been battling cancer and struggling. And uh, John, can we, put, can we see the picture? She sent this to Carrie and said, this is going to be me when I see Jesus. And I just, you can just see the emotion. And I get, I get uh, emotional. I see that. Because this, it's like, when it, death is not something to be feared. Death, we've been talking about this now for a couple of weeks, about what happens at the end. Death is not the end. It's a new beginning. And it's a beginning with no pain, no sorrow, no hardship. That's when life starts. And that's when it begins. And I thought this picture uh, 
just so, so greatly captures that. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.